Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We want stuff from life. Most people come to see me, they're frustrated, they're not getting what they want from life, they want a Ferrari in the garage, they want a date with Jennifer Aniston. Everyone's frustrated because they're not getting something they want from life. And you can get a lot from life, but you have to first of all give something to the world. And if you give something to the world, then you will get something back. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. My name is Poppy Jamie, a recovering perfectionist and the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Like the app, this show is about hitting pause and taking time to look after our mind and soul. In this series, I explore how we can make life better in 2020. How can we reduce stress, enjoy life, bounce back from setbacks and get in flow? My guests will be sharing their expert advice and I hope you join me on the journey. Our theme music is courtesy of Mindstream. Visit mindstream.com to learn more about how their music and environments help you sleep, relax, focus and move. Or find their music on any streaming platform. Let's crack on with the show. On today's show, I'm speaking to Dr. Raj, the expert in the psychology behind seduction. As you can imagine, I was so excited to record this episode. Finally, someone who can help me improve my flirtation skills. He is an author four times over, been on television coaching things and seduction for decades, and I managed to track him down to find out his wisdom face to face. I hope you enjoy this amusing chat. I will, of course, include links to his books in the show notes. They really are must-haves. When you describe me as an expert on seduction, you've already made me a little bit nervous there. I, I should tell you that when the publishers, my publishers, commissioned me to write uh, this book on seduction, um, uh, I was very excited by that. And I rang my wife up straight away and I said, darling, uh, the publishers have asked me to write their next book on seduction. And there was a very long silence on the phone. And I thought the, the line had dropped. I said, darling, are you still there? Hello. And then she said, yes, but why you? which I thought was very harsh. But that's what wives are for, to bring us down to earth. (laughs) Amazing. So we always dive into our first three questions. Mm. What is your favourite quote at the moment? Well, I'm going to start with a quote I'm not going to use because all of life and all of philosophy comes from, of course, the film Wall Street, the first film uh, starring um, this character, Gordon Gecko. Um, I work in private practice in Harley Street, and I see a lot of people in finance who make Gordon Gecko look like the Dalai Lama. Um, <laughs> so I love uh, Gordon Gecko's quotes. Um, one of his great quotes is, um, lunch is for wimps. So um, th- this idea that you don't eat all day, um, basically, because you're too busy making money. 
money and waging war in the markets. So you follow that one up because he obviously has a very dark view of what life is about. It's basically a war. And he also said, and if you want a friend, get a dog, <laughs> which, which I think is a great quote. Obviously, I don't subscribe to that philosophy. So the quote I am going to go with um, comes from a philosopher who was really unfashionable and actually ostracized for quite a long time, a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche was suspected of being a Nazi, so obviously became extremely unfashionable for a while. But it turned out that his sister had doctored his his writings because she was a Nazi. And, and Nietzsche has now been rehabilitated because, in fact, he was a very liberal guy and nothing like a Nazi. He was, um, I think he died around 1900, around that era. Um, but one of the things that Freud said uh, about Nietzsche was he had to stop reading Nietzsche because if he carried on reading Nietzsche, there'd be nothing left to say. So a lot of people don't realize yeah. that most Freudian, most of Freud's insights actually were were um, presaged or, or anticipated by Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, he's actually responsible for the quote I am, uh, uh, this long rambling introduction I am going to mention, which is said to be the most famous quote in all philosophy and is on more t-shirts than any other quote in philosophy. And uh, the reason I like the quote is because actually it's a misquote. If you actually know the, the real quote, it's slightly different. So the quote is, um, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. Um, but actually what Nietzsche said, and it, there's a tricky thing about the German translation, there's two versions of what he really said, what, because people forget the first bit. He said, in the war that is life, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. Or in the military academy that is life, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. Now, the reason I like that quote, and it's really unfashionable, it's about an idea that a lot of life is about enduring something mm. and about pushing through great difficulty. And I think one of the flaws with the whole happiness industry mm. is it tries to run away from that point that life is um, difficult. Now, ancient philosophy and, and Hinduism, for example, has said that the correct pathway to happiness is not to run away from the notion that there will be suffering in life and that yeah. in, to some extent we need to embrace the suffering a bit more. And I think in our modern culture, we're running a bit away from that, that the whole happiness industry doesn't bring up the fact there is suffering in life. Yeah. And I think we have to engage a little bit with that a bit more. So uh, that's one of the reasons I love that quote from Nietzsche. Nietzsche also said, and I'm paraphrasing him, that life is brutal and cruel and full of suffering. But our job, once we discover we're alive, is to learn how to love life. And that is the philosophy I subscribe to. How do we learn to love life despite the fact it's full of difficulty? Um, what's the most recent life lesson you've been reminded of recently? What I've learned very late in the day is that there are lots of very wise people, a lot of wisdom um, outside of universities, that, that there is a lot to be said um, for the fact that there is a lot of very interesting and important stuff in the research journals, but there's a lot of wisdom in ordinary human uh, engagement and interaction and I think the field the discipline of psychiatry and neuroscience forgets that mm. so I'd, I would say kindness compassion there's a huge amount in terms of human relationships in that and one of the reasons I did the seduction TED talk which has become very popular is I think that we're losing the notion of how to have relationships and that is partly because of the digital universe we exist in and we think relationships are having a Facebook friend but just 
um, we're having an interaction, a face-to-face interaction right now. And I think people are losing the art of how to look after people. Hopefully, we'll look after each other um, in in this conversation. Um, And I just think that people are losing the art of that. And compassion, generosity, kindness within human relationships is massively important. And it's about another central idea that I believe life is transactional. What I mean by that is we want stuff from life. Most people come to see me. They're frustrated. They're not getting what they want from life. They want a Ferrari in the garage. They Mm. want a date with Jennifer Aniston. They want to be thinner. They want to be more attractive. They want to be more popular. They want to earn more money. Everyone's frustrated because they're not getting something they want from life. And you can get a lot from life, but you have to, first of all, give something to the world. Mm. You have to give something to relationships. You have to give hard work, talent, skill, or interest, um, engagement. And if you give something to the world, then you will get something back. And it's that notion of you have to give something first and then get something back that I think we, people have lost. They're, they're sitting around with a very consumer view, a supermarket view of life. We're mm. going to walk into the supermarket of life and pull things off the shelf, like relationships, love, mm. sex, power, money, as opposed to this notion of what do we have to give to the world in order to get something back. And technology's made it so easy just to take, right? I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, this is going slightly off, but dating apps, like the supermarket of people. Yes, I agree. That's one of my concerns. And again, going back to the seduction video, why I made the video, I think that people are losing the art of seduction. And um, a a good place to start is asking people what they think a seduction looks like, you Mm. see. And I think people have even, and we're going to define happiness later on, these these definitional points are really important and they get slid over. What is the definition of happiness? What is the definition of a seduction? So here's what I think, and I'm going to sound very patronizing and a grumpy old man here. So (laughs) what I think young people think a seduction is today. Young people think a seduction is you walk into a bar, you see an attractive person, and uh, you, you get blind drunk together, and then you fall into each other's arms at the end of the evening. That, I'm sorry to tell you, is not a seduction. That is something else. It's such a British way of hooking up, isn't it? Exactly. It's like, let's get wasted, and then maybe we'll have enough confidence. Yes, exactly. So I'll tell you what a seduction is, and, and uh, obviously you can tell this comes from years of hurt in terms of my dating life, the way I'm going to define this. A seduction is this, you meet someone... And you really fancy them because they're gorgeous. But unfortunately, they are at best indifferent to you or they just don't like you. Mm. Okay. And what a seduction is, you charm them into desiring you. Mm. You turn that oil tanker around because it was drifting away from you. And through charm and the force of your personality and whatever, the social skills, you turn that tanker around and they start to fancy you and then they desire you. So the seduction is igniting desire in someone who didn't have it for you. That is a seduction. Now, immediately people go, they don't like that because they think that's that smells of calculation, scheming, plotting, manipulation. And I take the view that I'm afraid to say a lot of life, if you're going to engage in relationships skillfully, does involve to some extent skills and arts that some people reject because they say, why can't I just be myself? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I've got no problem with you being yourself and have no plan or strategy uh, in life. But I've got to warn you about something. It really often doesn't work. And it's just best to have a plan of some description. But people hate that. And one of the key tensions in our conversation is going to be the fact that people reject the notion that we should be anything other than ourself. And I embrace another notion, which a lot of life is theatre. And, and yeah. the, the consultation in in in, uh, in psychiatry and psychology is very theatrical, in my view, in terms yeah. of the roles people play, the, the way they... they, they um, uh, approach you in the consultation and um, meeting someone in a bar is a bit of theatre. And I would argue that you need to think about life as a bit of theatre and think about the script because we're all using yeah. a script and to how to improve the script mm. uh, to get a better outcome. But there's a serious tension between that and other people who say, no, no, that's not authentic. Let me be myself. If I meet someone in a bar and they don't like me, I'll move on to someone else. I won't bother trying to be any, anything other than what I am. And I think part of the art of life is, have, is to have a repertoire of other ways of being as a way of engaging uh, with other people. Do you not feel the gender roles restrict our ability to play different roles? For example, I think I've been very conditioned as a white woman to wait to be desired, to kind of sit there and smile and hope that someone will want to seduce you. Mm. And it's quite a limiting belief, to be honest. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. In fact, a large part of my private practice is young professional women uh, bemoaning the fact they can't find the right guy. Yeah. And they tend to be way too passive, in my opinion, over, I'm going to say something going to make you run screaming from the room, in terms of their search strategy. And people <laughs> don't like the word search strategy. They don't like the notion of, of um, women going out there and making it happen. They take a more passive approach, which unfortunately I think Hollywood has a lot to, 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 to be blamed for. Because in Hollywood, um, what romance looks like is the woman is gorgeous and and the man falls into her lap you, 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 uh, through sheer chance. Over and over again, uh, a, a great film, for example, I think called Holiday uh, with Ju the gorgeous yeah. Jude Law. Yeah. Um, the, the, the woman um, swaps um, accommodation with another woman and yeah. Jude Law just happens to be living next door <laughs> in, in this cottage in uh, the remote rural English countryside. She's come from <laughs> California. You see, she just happens to be next door and that's how it happens. And over and over again, um, you see that the way it happens is, uh, is an accident that the, the, the woman connects with the guy. And I believe you can't wait for an accident. Let's go out and make it happen. Let's be proactive and let's uh, be much more engaged. So I agree with you that this gender role notion that women should be passive, yeah. I don't agree with at all. Great. I think women should be active and Fantastic. get up and make something happen. And again, they, they, they then women say, well, that feels a bit desperate. Okay, there's a, there's a sense where And you'll get told that men want to chase. You've got to allow them to chase. 
Yeah. Um, no, I, again, I don't, I don't mind if people come back at me because a lot of my consultations, there's a lot of very active back and forth. They're very argumentative and challenging and provocative. I don't mind people rejecting my um, solutions. You've got to come up with an alternative solution. Mm. Okay. And if, it, if your alternative solution, like just be yourself or wait for guys to come over, is working, fine. <laughs> but if it's not working, let's try something else. And that's a very important life lesson. Let's think hard about whether what I'm doing is working or not. And let's try something else. And stop being afraid of other people's judgment. Mm. You'll discover a lot of things I'm going to say about what I do in my spare time. You're going to think, you're going to be very judgy about it. You're going to think, that's a crazy thing to do. But I don't care. And one, one of the things that liberates people is to stop caring uh, what other people think too much and therefore take the take the risk of being a bit clunky a bit gauche uh, and make social faux pas right left and said that i make a huge number of social faux pas all the time but that's partly because i'm engaging in risk and people don't engage in enough risk in social situations in terms of chatting people up so how do you define happiness well again that's an excellent question because there's a lot written about happiness there's there's a lot of um uh, pop psychology and it's a very important subject and the first question of course is it's very badly defined people use the word a lot and they skate over it it's a very important word before I define it let me make a point a um, paradoxical point you should take happiness very seriously Aristotle a uh, famous ancient Greek philosopher um, one of the towering intellectual giants uh, of, of the last 2300 years what Aristotle said in terms of how to define happiness and it's the first key step in order to take happiness seriously and become happier. And what's interesting is 2,300 years later, after Aristotle died, modern psychology and neuroscience has come round um, to agree with Aristotle that there are two kinds of happiness. This is a fundamentally important point. And psychologists, being very imaginative people, have labeled these two types of happiness type one happiness and type two happiness. <laughs> so type one happiness is the kind of happiness you feel when you drink a nice glass of wine, you're in a bar with friends, in a convivial atmosphere, you have a nice meal, you watch a great movie, um, etc., etc. It, it's happiness that tends to be hedonistic, pleasurable. Um, it's transient. After you've had a wonderful evening with your friends, the very next day, you're more or less back to as happy as you were before you had the lovely evening with your friends. Um, it's often usually very sensual. What I mean by that is it's happiness that's linked to our biology. So we enjoy certain foods, we enjoy sex, etc., etc. We're biologically programmed to, to pursue those things. But people are often are confusing happiness with just type 1 happiness, and that's a fundamental mistake. Type 2 happiness, and Aristotle realised this 2,300 years ago, is another key kind of happiness. This is a more intellectual, cognitive kind of happiness, which is the happiness you feel, the warm glow you feel when you consider the direction your life is taking and you feel some pride in achievements. So this is the kind of happiness that occurs when you overcome a difficulty. You finish a PhD thesis, you mm. write a book, you finish a degree. Um, a classic example is nursing a sick child through the night. No one gets any kind of type 1 happiness from nursing a sick mm. child through the night. But if the child is alive the next morning, there's a certain type 2 satisfaction from having achieved this difficulty. So type 2 happiness is about something you give to the world. Type 1 happiness is something you take from the world. Someone had to make that nice meal and give it to you, and that's why you had the type 1 pleasure. Yeah. Someone had to be amazing in bed, and that's why you enjoyed that um, night of physical pleasure. Mm. So you, you take something from the world with type 1 happiness. You give something with type 2 happiness. Um, 
And then, in other words, you give hard work and then reap yeah. the rewards of the of the satisfaction. Um, so I'm very excited to dive in uh, to seduction further because I think it's something that no one is not interested in um, because it relates to everything. What do you think most people do wrong? Like, what are the things that you go, oh, another person has got this completely wrong? Well, um, and I'm going to be very unpopular. Um, because anyone who met me when I was a teenager and in the ways even now would, would um, burst out laughing at the idea of an expert on seduction. Um, but remember, I want to hastily add, I've been happily married for, for 25 years. Um, but I want to emphasize, I mean seduction in a wider sense. One of the reasons why people don't want to talk about it and they need to discuss it between each other is that they're thinking about it in a very narrow, erotic sense of the word. I'm talking about it in a more general sense. Mm. I think that when you go to a job interview, and you're trying to get the other person to like you and therefore give you the job, there's a sense in which that is a seduction. I don't mean that in a narrow, erotic sense. I mean getting the other person to like you. And I'm going to still use the word desire because I think we can desire people. It doesn't have to be sexual. It can totally. be We can desire people in terms of liking their company or liking their friendship. And so I mean seduction in, in, the, in the most general sense of how do we get people to like us. But I prefer the word seduction because it's got a harder edge because the notion of desire... Is a, is a stronger word. It's about when you desire a friend, right, you want to ring them up. You want to mm. see them for drinks, okay? And I like that notion of an energy mm. um, which takes people towards you, okay? So you've created the conditions where people want to be with you and they'll, like, make sacrifices to mm. be with you. But obviously, I, I take that over because I think people in, uh, are making a mistake. They go, they're, they're trying to be seductive in romantic relationships. You've got to start with, are you seductive in general? Are you right. a good friend? Do people like you? You've got to start there and then move in to, to the other thing. Another thing is enthusiasm. So I think you're very seductive. For example, <laughs> when we met outside, you were incredibly enthusiastic, right? I mean, maybe it was because you were worried I may not be turning up, but you were incredibly enthusiastic at seeing me, and that was very seductive, right? And you have an enthusiasm about you. And again, people are just not enthusiastic. You know, a lot of a lot of people meet me and they go, "Hi, Raj, nice to meet you." And here's what's going to happen: you were really um, uh, very um, like it was the best 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 thing that's going to happen. You. This week meeting me and I thought well probably isn't but what I'm trying to it say is, is you, you created an incredible impression which made me enthusiastic so enthusi enthusiasm is engaging mm. right so you've got an enthusiasm about you right which I think you, your generation thinks enthusiasm is uncool and, and I'm desperate uncool <laughs> yeah, and that's okay that's okay so that's another thing be enthusiastic be enthusiastic about people in general have a wide network of friends as a result, and you will eventually meet the right person through that network. It will be the friend of a friend of a friend. And that's another place to start. People are always just reaching out to meet the right person. Have, be surrounded by a wide network of people that you're enthusiastic about, and that is a net which will catch uh, the right fish for you. So then, what is how does seduction change when you want to turn a friendship into a romantic relationship? Because I feel that I have a lot of friends that suddenly go, actually, you know what? My best friend maybe is my person. Mm -hmm. But that change from, you know, these different stages of relationship is actually quite a tricky one to navigate. Mm -hmm. From the psychological perspective, how does that change? Mm. What we, makes a romantic relationship? What makes a friendship? Well, we... we, we come into an interesting tension back to just be yourself because the just be yourself thing which is often advocated by Hollywood is you should just announce mm. uh, I think I fancy you or something like that and I'm, <laughs> and I'm not 
I'm not against a direct conversation, but I'm not. I'm a bit worried about that because that can go badly wrong. Mm. And I think again, we have to think about: is there a script? Is there a, is there a role play here? Uh, but I think that people naturally get closer. So you you create. This is going to seem manipulative. You create intimate conditions. So you create conditions where you are alone together mm. in in um, certain kinds of situations that are more romantic. Mm. So you have to generate those situations. And a lot of psychology is about the idea that the situation produces the behavior. So for example, sorry to use a clunky example, if a student is having trouble studying, um, what's ha probably happening is around their desk at home when they're meant to be studying, a lot of distractions like their mobile phone, the yeah. TV, etc, etc. You clear out your room from all the distractions and you only have the books in there and the environment forces you to perform the action, which is to study. If you want to give up smoking or give up drinking, at home it's full of bottles or cigarettes, yeah. you clear out the environment of the temptations and therefore then um, you create the conditions whereby the environment's going to produce the behavior. So what are the right environments? Now this is going to sound paradoxical. I think environments that are slightly stressful create more romance. Interesting. There's a famous psychology experiment done where uh, men um, have to cross a bridge and at the end is an uh, attractive um, member of the opposite sex and they they um, rate how much they fancy uh, this woman yeah. in the condition one of the experiment uh, the bridge is a very safe bridge over a very shallow drop and then they meet this woman at the end and then they rate how attractive they found her in the condition two of the experiment the bridge the bridge is different and is carefully designed to be rickety slightly scary and over a very long drop so by the time the men get to the end of the bridge they're scared <laughs> of, of having made the journey they always find that woman way more attractive. Okay? Really? And we don't exactly know why that is. There are various theories about what that is. But I want you to notice something, which is most conditions that people go in in terms of trying to create a romantic situation are ones that are comfortable and relaxed. You should actually do something which gets the heart pumping, gets the adrenaline surging, bungee jumping, stuff like that. Things that are slightly scary. There's a lot of evidence that leads to bonding. People tend to bond when they're slightly scary. War is very romantic. More mar marriages went up at, at, at wartime. Um, and there's a genetic and evolutionary theory that your, your genes wake up to the fact that in a slightly dangerous environment, they not, may not be there for much longer. Therefore, let's procreate. Let's pass on our genes to future generations. And, and famously in, in America, um, you take your date to a horror film, um, which seems a bit <laughs> so weird. But, but but teenagers love going to horror films. But you cling to each other in the, the scariness of the horror film, and it actually replicates to some extent these psychological uh, experiments. Interesting. Notice the stresses I was discussing uh, in terms of what makes the ideal date or the conditions that make romance happen are physical threat. Right. right. So um, it was rickety bridges, horror films, th things which it looks like you're, you're um, going out in the forest and a lion might pounce on you. That's different to the kind of stress in modern 20th yeah. century London, which is the stress of a bullying boss. Right. And they're killing relationships. I feel our stress levels are making people more single than ever. Yes. But so I'm advocating a, a, a philosophy, which is people need to go out and try to replicate that ancestral environment a bit mm. of engaging with physical threat. So things that involve physical threat or physical danger um, uh, or phys physical activity engaged with the physical world is a kind of stress I'm suggesting sparks romance. The, the, the social threat type of um, stress that people have like a bullying boss, um, deadlines at work, kill romance. So that's not, and again, again coming, coming to a date and complaining about what a crap day you had at work <laughs> is not sexy.
Yeah. And that's what marriages often uh, turn into in, in, in the long run. So again, being able to surf stress and, and cope with stress and being able to overcome it is, is sexier than looking like you're succumbing to it. So, so I'm saying not just that you have to put yourself in physically threatening or physically stressful situations, but you also have to be able to handle it. That's what is sexy. Completely agree. The only way to get around fear is move through it. Right. So I want to now talk about another really interesting paradox about why happiness is so elusive and why, despite our best efforts, it seems to slip slip through our fingers. And it's a famous psychology experiment. I'm going to overly simplify it just to make make the point. Um, In this experiment, people are asked to do a boring, mundane office task like photocopying um, some stuff. This is obviously dating the experiment to way before uh, modern technology when there were things like photocopiers in, in offices. <laughs> anyway, so you, you give the, the subjects in the psychology experiment a, a photocopying task to do. And in condition one, they do the photocopying task. And then they fill out a very in-depth questionnaire that explores how happy they are. But the questionnaire is designed to probe not just how happy you feel right now, but to explore how generally content you are with the whole direction your life is taking. So it's a real global measure of your overall sense of contentment about your whole lifespan, right? In condition two of the experiment, people are performing the same boring photocopying task, but the experimenter has um, sneakily arranged that a small sum of money is left on the photocopier, and so that people discover this small sum of money and pocket it as a kind of unexpected small <laughs> gift. And it, it's a really small sum of money. It's like 50 pence, yeah. right? So it's not big enough that you might report it to someone that, you know, I found a 50-pound note. The stunning result is the people who find the 50 pence piece rate their lives in terms of their overall lifespan as being significantly globally more happy than the people who didn't find a 50 pence piece. So what's going on here? It's only a 50 pence piece. The interesting theory is that unexpected benefits Mm. do more to make you happy than practically anything else. So an unexpected benefit, you go to a party and it goes unexpectedly well. You meet an unexpectedly attractive person. Um, Unexpected gifts um, uh, do more for your happiness. Now, here's the paradox. How How do you build more unexpected stuff into your life? Because by definition, um, if you go to things because you expect them to work, then it's not unexpected anymore. And that is one of the reasons why happiness may be so elusive. We do stuff and it's, it's routine and we kind of have expectations about what it's meant to deliver. And what this experiment is telling is something really interesting, going back to a point we made earlier. You have to gamble more in life. Because yeah. by definition, if you do something like take up tennis and turn up for the first day of the lesson, there is a possibility that coach is going to say, you're really crap at tennis. But if the coach says, actually, you did really well, better than I thought you would, yeah. then that you're going to feel so much better. But you are entering a world of risk. To, to create the possibility of unexpected benefits, you also create the possibility of unexpected losses. And you have to be up for that. That's God, my I key love point. this. So yes. I'm going to use a... Science pa- tells us to be more risky. Exactly. Ah, but, but, you, but, but I want you to notice something. As a result, several times it's not going to go well and, and it won't work out well. But you have to be up for that. You have to be up for the idea that sometimes it will work out. I love this. So I want to shift to relationships. 2020, how do we improve our relationships and especially kind of marriage or romantic relationships? Um, In your TED talk, you talk about the three stages of the relationship. I'd love for you to kind of dive into that a little bit deeper. Well, the first thing is to think about relationships. I don't think people think about them. And again, people are just going back to, I'll just be myself. And Mm. they just refer to being spontaneous. Well, there's a lot of research on relationships, um, scientific research. You can start with um, 
just thinking about relationships, and in particular, if you're thinking about relationships, thinking about other people and thinking about what emotional state are they in, because again, people are blithely um, um, ignorant of that point. Whoever you're with, think about what mood is this person in,、mm. and to what extent are they fronting up? To what what mood are they hiding? What are they really feeling, as opposed to what are they pretending to feel? Okay, they may be pretending to be interested in what I'm saying, or are they genuinely interested? So, so also burrow into the other person, try to find out how they're feeling, and you can do that by、um, asking them questions about how their day is going and so on. So, be interested in the mental state of the other person. Now,、um, one of the other points I make in the in the TED talk, I have to skate over a lot of. Territory very quickly. I discussed this very important concept about the unmet need. Find the unmet need the other person has. So think about other people's needs and think about what need is not being met. And then the second phase of that plan, again, people think this is too scheming and calculating, is to think about how to fill the unmet need. Now, why is it people don't do that? The main reason why that people don't do that is they're thinking too hard about their own unmet needs. They're thinking too hard about what's going wrong in my life and how am I going to try and use this relationship to to fix my problem. So at a job interview, people are too keen to get the job and and try to get the person to give them the job. They don't think about a job interview another way, which is what can I give this person?、Mm. This person has something to give me, but what can I give them? What are because they, they they've sat through a very boring day of interviewing a hundred candidates. They are bored to tears. What what is there? Unmet need. So think about people. Think about their mental states. I think people are really bad at that, working out what mood people are in, and and also engage with the other person by asking them questions. How much of your conversation is a question to the other person? How much is a statement? The, the more statements you make,、um, you know, I saw this great football match last night, Arsenal versus Liverpool. That's not. A great conversation. A, a a better conversation is what did you do last night and how did you find it? So ask questions. And people seem very nervous about questions. A lot of art, a lot of life, basically boils down to ask the right question.、Um, oh. Ask the right question of yourself.、So、ask、true. the right question of the person that you're with. What are three good questions everyone should have in their back pocket? Are you having fun yet? <laughs> <laughs> Or are you having fun? It's a good question. I think.、Um, how how could we make this more fun for you? It's not a bad question. Not a bad question.、Yeah. Um, what's the most fun you've ever had? Yeah, that's true. You'd probably. I'm going to ask、learn. you. What's the most fun you've ever had? What's the most ever fun ever ever? It was. I think it was a trip I had in Brazil. Okay. It was just so fun. Why was that? Why was it was that just、fun? we just giggled. It was just so funny. I went with my best friend, and it was so silly.、Mm -hmm. And I remember not being able to sleep the week afterwards because we had just laughed so much. I think I'd run out of all serotonin because、oh, okay. you were just. It was so fun. It was、okay. great. So, but it was a bit so, of danger. We didn't know where we were going to stay. There you we know. go. You see, totally. It was very、yeah. much to your. So no one's pieces. asked you before. What's the most? And we jumped、thing? out of a plane. Aha!、Uh -huh. You see. You see. <laughs> See, <laughs> so listen, but no one's ever asked you before. What's the most fun you've ever no. had? No, it's that interesting. It's so interesting because they should ask you. Yeah,、that. because you can't even think of it. I was like, oh god, what is the most fun I've ever had? And everything、yeah. you kind of come up with, you're like, no, I could do better than that. Yeah, I actually, my main thing in life right now is I don't think any of us have really thought or asked ourselves questions, introspective questions, because we're just too busy doing life、hmm. rather than being human beings.、Hmm. So, great, great question.、Hmm. Okay, another another terrible question. You don't have to answer it, but <laughs>、yeah. a good question, and it's a question that will lower the temperature at any party you're at, and people will run screaming from the room. 
Good question, though, um, and it goes back to Aristotle. What is the ultimate purpose of life? It's a great question. No one's ever going to be thank- thanking you for asking that question. Right. But it's a, it's a really... It's a table clearer. It's a really important <laughs> question. If you're thinking of settling down with someone, though, is, yeah. is, a, is a question you should ask. And people don't ask that question. Aligning the values. Yet they get married and have three children and then think, hmm, maybe, maybe we don't agree on what the ultimate purpose of life is. And sadly, I could talk to you all day. And I'm very sad that uh, this interview has come to an end because I've got many more questions. But hopefully we can, we can get together again. So to finish, um, I ask a, a beginning of a sentence. Well, no, I don't ask at the beginning of a sentence. I start a sentence and please, can you finish it? So I relax by... Dry martinis. The person I love most in the world is... My wife. I'm dying to have dinner with... My wife. (laughs) She doesn't see me that much. (laughs) Um, If I could do it all again, I would. And take more risks. Take more risks. Mm -hmm. Best thing I bought recently was... Ooh. Ooh. Um, This is very geeky, though. Um, I bought this gadget where you can take a photograph on your phone and send it via Bluetooth as gadget. It prints out the picture. Oh, great. So it's like a credit card-sized picture. But it's really sociable because actually people share pictures all the time on Instagram mm. or on their phones, but they don't. it's not really sociable. When you have a hard copy in your hand, it's really amazing how people gather around yeah. and they want one, for example. It's actually mo- it promotes more actual sociability, having a physical photograph in your hand. So Another tip for seduction. Yes, definitely. Best piece of advice I was given was? When uh, I asked the famous great psychotherapist, who should remain nameless, he died uh, while I was in training um, with him. I kept asking lots of technical questions about patients I was seeing. What should I do when the patient does this? What should I do when the patient does that? And he finally cut me off. He said, listen, as a general rule, do the human thing. Oh, Which I wow. thought was an amazing thing to say. Because again, we can get lost with technical skill in psychotherapy. But oh. I thought... I think it was a lovely thing to say. And I think, generally speaking, life, do the human thing. That should be on a T-shirt. Quote Dr. Raj. When I'm feeling insecure, I... Have to do something competitive and go and try and play tennis and win. (laughs) (laughs) I think. The book I recommend the most is... That's very tricky. Uh, The trouble is, the actual book itself is a book written by the most important Italian in history. I love to tease Italians when I meet them by saying, who's the most important Italian in history? In terms of the most impact, they always give me the wrong people, like Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Galileo. And I always say, these are pygmies compared to who I'm thinking of, (laughs) intellectual pygmies. And they draw a complete blank. And of course it is a person who was alive around 1500 uh, in the environment around Florence. Um, His house is still standing um, in the countryside next to Florence is, is Niccolo Machiavelli. Now, Niccolo Machiavelli wrote a very important book called The Prince. Now, The Prince itself is a book about as a guide to relationships. This comes straight back to Gordon Gecko and Wall Street because it's it's a book about power manipulation and therefore seen as about the dark arts. Um, I wouldn't... I mean, The Prince is quite difficult to read. It's a very thin book. and You can read commentaries on The Prince, but it's about a very important idea, which is how to conduct relationships and how to think about what is my goal in the relationship and to have goals in relationships, like to make the relationship closer or whatever. So that's a very key idea. Again, running against the idea, I'll just be spontaneous. I'll just be myself. And lastly, if you really knew me, you would know... That I care about you. Oh, Dr. Raj, thank you for all your work in the field. Um, We are most appreciative. Thank you. 
That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.